Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this on Saturday, January 20th, 2024. You're listening for the first time on Sunday, January 21st, 2024. And this episode will be rebroadcast on Monday, January 22nd at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, my name is Jasmine, and this week I'm here with, you know, people that haven't been on for a minute. My friends Janet and Matthew. How are y'all doing? Good. Great to be back and kind of relieved the holidays are over. <laughs> um, I'm just here to give my fans what they want. My um, voice, uh, my opinions, my correct facts. Um, so glad to be back. <laughs> I'm joking, of course, obviously. <laughs> but I'm doing okay. <laughs> Hanging in here with the gloomy weather. <laughs> Yes, so, and I also wanted to say a happy belated birthday to my youngest brother, Charles. He's 13 now. Aw, nice. So, uh, and you know what? Happy birth- belated, well, I texted him yesterday, but it was my little younger brother's birthday yesterday. Um, so happy birthday to him, too. Happy birthday to our brothers. Um, so that on this week's show, um, I'll be talking about, for local news, cuts to the CUNY budget. For national news, we'll be talking about um, several migrants who were drowned and workers who were physically barred from saving them from drowning at the southern border. And for world news, uh, we'll have an update on uh, Israel's um, violence against Gaza and Iran's ties to various um, conflicts in the region. Uh, so at the beginning, like I will start off with the local news story. This is not the entire article. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read some of it. But this is from uh, the city.nyc. The title is CUNY layoffs and class cuts come just weeks before new semester by Haiti Chu. Chu, And this was written on January the 12th of this year. In the middle of the school year, at least two CUNY colleges in Queens have slashed dozens of staff following the City University's central administration mandates last month for eight campuses to make enhanced deficit reduction plans. Queens College on January 10th laid off 26 full-time faculty members slated to teach in the spring semester, while York College has since mid-December let go of an estimated 75 part-time adjuncts and a number of non-teaching staffers with more cuts to come, according to the school's faculty and union leaders. The 11th hour orders have forced department chairs into a state of disarray as they hurry to rearrange and reschedule class sections to make accommodations. Some classes have been canceled altogether, while others have to take on more students to fill the gaps. At York, 275 class sections, or about 18% of all of its original total of 1,513 classes, have been cut from the registrar, said Donna Chirico, a professor of psychology at York and a faculty caucus leader of the York College Senate. That means less flexibility in scheduling for students who have to juggle obligations outside of school 
and less availability for prerequisite or mandatory classes that students may need to progress in their degrees. Jake Apkarian, Associate Professor of Behavioral Sciences at York and a Chapter Officer at the Professional Staff Congress, or PSC, Union at CUNY, said at least one of his students won't be able to graduate this spring unless she can find an equivalent course at another campus as a substitute to a now-canceled class. Noah Gardy, a spokesperson for CUNY's Central Administration, said the cuts had come as a result of budget reduction plans, quote, designed to give colleges flexibility and discretion to alleviate budget shortfalls in a manner consistent with their distinct needs and circumstances. In addition to those requests, the university has implemented cost-saving measures, strategies to boost enrollment and strengthen retention, increased fundraising, and pursued public-private partnerships, Gardy told the city. We look forward to working with our partners in government in the coming months to advocate for resources to help CUNY realize our mission to lift New York. Queens College spokesperson Maria Mateo said, these most recent actions came about in December as part of an externally imposed savings target plan. Though Gardy emphasized that the content of the cost-cutting plans were independently developed by individual colleges upon CUNY Central's request. Faculty members axed at Queens College said they were blindsided by the layoffs, as many of them have only just signed on to offer letters in December to continue teaching in the spring. I had a total failure of imagination that this would be possible, said Mia Hood who was let go from the college's secondary education department where she said her classes, some of which are required for teaching accredi accredi accreditation, have been close to fully enrolled for the spring. She had turned down freelance gigs to start full-time teaching at CUNY in the fall under a one-year lecture appointment in hopes of more stability in her income and career, she said. I had an eight-page document with all of the ways I wanted to change and improve the course for the spring, and you know, suddenly, I've got a lot of time on my hands, added Hood. Ash Marianacho said she was also let go from her position as assistant professor of media studies at Queens College without severance or benefits. Essentially, they issued us contracts with funding that did not exist, said Marianacho, who is also a PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center. But it's like, who suffers? The students suffer. The students deserve better, she added. The faculty deserve better. So yeah, I had almost talked about this story last week, um, but I talked about the nursing shortage instead. But, you know, they're not unrelated, you know, just lack of investment in higher education that's affordable and reasonable for the average person, um, devaluing of education just in general, it's um, very sad and I think grossly irresponsible. Yeah, I mean, I, even this is just like one more instance of education being under a very like right-wing centrist attack, um, like just the continuing pattern across the nation. Um, I think there was a big 
kind of discussion when it occurred in Florida um, under DeSantis and like as a new college, it was one of their top kind of like conservatory colleges, been gutted. Now they have like right wing nuts in there who are just like dismantling the programs. Um, there was another university that cut so many programs. A lot of humanity courses are being cut. Um, and this is at this story, I, I saw it come across social media, but I was absolutely shocked that there were offer letters signed uh, in December and then they were fired. So that blew my mind. Um, and I think that final um, quote summed it up. They offered us contracts when there was no money. Um, I hope someone gets taken to court and makes them pay because that is just absolutely insane. I mean, I hope the courses come back, honestly. That's the best case scenario, that they just reinstate the positions. Yeah, this is, it just kind of makes my blood boil because I've had experience as an adjunct instructor um, and I can guarantee you that that's not a huge quantity of money getting rid of 20 something, uh, you know, professor or adjunct professors, especially, um, you know, there was a huge movement of adjuncts last year, um, to try to get better rights in various schools in New York city. And it seemed to make some progress after a million days of striking, but it's clearly evident that schools haven't learned to value their teaching. Um, you would think that the heart of education is teachers and students. That's what it's all about. But it seems that that is exactly who gets um, hurt by policy decisions based on money and that other things that are administrative or above them or are kind of um, have been expanding their wealth and resources are protecting themselves and then they cut like the essence of the school. So really frustrating on that level. And then just thinking of these teachers who like the woman cited said she had prepared so many notes to go into her course even before the semester started which is always the case and all of the efforts of these teachers to prepare the courses because you don't just like oh i start teaching in january so that's the first day of work it's so much prep to create a course so all of the labor that they did in preparation for this contract was not paid for i imagine so that's also infuriating and yeah, you definitely know it's not about the actual money and monetary um, numbers, because if that were the case, you would definitely be chopping the, um, the money coming from the people who are taking the money, like the presidents, uh, the deans, the chancellors. Those are the people who are pulling in the money uh, and like being are the greatest cost to any university. The adjuncts, like you put it out, Janet are a fraction of any budget. Like they barely give them any privileges, um, even though they're carrying so much of the coursework. Yeah, and I, I wanted to bring up also, so four days after this story came out, or what this article was written in the city.nyc, the New York Daily News uh, had a story about a $75 million donation tied to AI that was received by CUNY and I've seen online, you know, how this is being hailed as this big, great thing to create this, um, to fund CUNY's participation in Empire AI, a, pub a public-private partnership proposed by Governor Hochul to give seven New York universities and research institutions access 
to an artificial intelligence computing center upstate. So this, I don't know, it's like with all of this AI stuff that we've been talking about and people, you know, cheering it on, it's like you're looking at a forest full of trees cheering on an axe, you know, because you start out with like, oh, you know, professors are too expensive, like they make too much money, like let adjuncts can just do that. And so you shift a lot of the burden of university teaching onto underpaid, overworked, precarious workers then it becomes, oh, we don't really even need the adjuncts. Like, we don't even need this subject. Have a computer program do it, you know? And it's, I don't think people appreciate the big picture of what these relentless cuts are doing to us as, like, a populace, you know? Yeah, like, what it means, like, for people. Like, you know, I saw that media literacy person in the article whose job was eliminated. We need that more than ever. <laughs> I mean... It, it's what you're saying, Jasmine, like this, it, because I mean, even in the contracts that we saw with like um, the SGA, WAG, they still got like AI um, protections were not fully like drafted or thought out. So like, as you're saying, what's going to stop them from carrying, I don't know, a digital rendering of an actor teaching a module um, remotely when you don't actually need to pay a professor anymore? Like it's all coming together, right? The actors are paid to be engaging. There are these kind of things in work and this is where people are, like people who are making money are seeing things going. And everyone just, yeah, like cheering on that AI funding. Like, do we understand what that actually is? And a lot of people, I don't think do. Like media literacy, like you're gonna have media teach you media literacy, like the robots teach you how to know how to you know interpret the internet and things like this i had a good example of this just this week um i don't want to get too far into an aside but i've been reading the power broker and there's a great podcast that's starting called on 99 invisible that is focusing on the power broker and the opening of their episode was the quote that um caro uses which is listed as a Sophocles quote. And the two men discussing it said, oh, I couldn't find the source for this quote in Sophocles. So having a classics background, I paused it. And then I proceeded to search for the source of this Sophocles quote and took a deep dive. But in my search for the quote, what the internet initially presented to me was various sites full of misquoting information with no source of any quotes. And I really had to scramble to go to old resources that I knew of with this background that where I could look at the Greek texts and sort through them and try to find it. But it just was set off in me like a thought of like, how can students like navigate this without a special training? Because when you put things into the Google search bar, you're presented with so much misinformation uh, very po you know poor websites that are not based on any academic uh, level of research or accountability. Uh, so it just kind of set off a whole thing in my mind. And like to read and hear about this article you're talking about, Jasmine, with media being media literacy, a, a real human being who could guide students in this new age of the internet and all the quandaries we have. It's just it's just so heartbreaking and, and frustrating. 
It's really, it's real bad. It's real bad. And like last week when we were talking about the nurse shortage, like one of the things that the governor was, one of the proposed solutions mentioned was like, oh, and like we'll let nurses practice if a thir- if up to a third of their training or like practice hours were done on a simulation. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Because <laughs> like simulations and like computer generated things also have biases ingrained in them. And there's a lot of stuff where it's like a computer is not going to prepare you. You got to be in it with like a human being guiding you. I don't forget. I don't know who said it first, but there's that expression like a budget is a moral document because a budget tells you what matters to you. And especially under this mayor, like we see what matters to him, like cops and robots, basically. It's like what what kind of world are we building? Yeah, we want to build more prisons, incarcerate more people, spend millions of dollars on uh, what are they fair evasive or anti fair evasion gates that are easily manipulated by a hand going over a sensor. Um, just pathetic. <laughs> but then, then that's as you were saying, Jasmine, what the budget reflects as a moral document, like it mirrors the country's budget. It's towards military um, and killing people. It's not, we could have better schools um, and education, but we don't because the leaders choose not to. Uh, part of you know what we're trying to do with this radio program, talking about these topics is, you know, the powerful people above us are trying to convince us that their actions will help us, that they'll improve society. But we have to be wise to the fact that these AI developments are really going to affect us, what kind of jobs we can or can't have, you know, how we're valued. And we need to be wide awake and wide eyed about what's going on here and not be fooling, you know, getting fooled by uh, propaganda that's trying to convince us that these technological changes are good for us. Right. So um, you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our first musical break, I thought, because uh, Matthew, you sent me a text with an emoji of someone doing like the bus stop. And it reminded yeah. me of Saturday Night Fever. And then this is a song from that soundtrack that I really like. <laughs> this is um, Yvonne Elliman with If I Can't Have You. We'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Matthew with our national news story. Hello, everybody. Um, I am going to first start with um, a reporting in Reuters from January 12th um, to preface the uh, article I'm going to be reading today. Um, The title of the first article um, that was published is titled Texas Erects New Border Barrier as Dispute with Biden Administration Ramps Up. This was written by John Cruzel and Ted Hessen. Um, Texas this week erected new barriers along part of the state's border with Mexico, blocking border, border patrol access, a court filing said on Friday. As conflict over migration escalates between the state's Republican governor and Democratic U.S. President Joe Biden. So that was on the 12th. The full article um, I'm going to be talking about that it revolves around that um, occurring is titled, Three Migrants Drowned After Texas's Attempt to Seize Control of the Border. This was published on motherjones.com by Julianne McShane on January 16th, 2024. Three migrants drowned in the Rio Grande near the Texas border on Friday night, a tragedy that federal officials say may have pre- may have been prevented were it not for the state's attempt to seize control of patrolling the border in pursuit of its anti-immigration goals. CNN reported that Mexico's National Institute of Migration on Monday identified the migrants as Victor de la Sancha Ceros, 33, Yorley Ruby, 10, and Jonathan Agustin Briones de la Sancha, 8. Texas Democratic Representative Henry Cuellar, um, more on him a bit later, said that the group was a mother and her children, citing Mexican sources. The tragedy has become the latest escalation in an ongoing battle between federal and Texas officials over the regulation of migration into the state. Last month, Texas GOP Governor Greg Abbott passed a law that made undocumented immigration into Texas a state crime, allowing state law enforcement officials to arrest undocumented immigrants, undocumented immigrants anywhere in the state. In response, the DOJ filed a lawsuit against Texas, arguing that the law violated the Constitution which assigns the federal government the authority to regulate immigration and manage our international borders. And then last week, the DOJ said that the Texas said that the Texas National Guard had refused Border Patrol's access to a 2.5 mile long stretch of the border, including Shelby Park, where the migrants drowned. These incidents do not occur in a vacuum. They're part of government. Governor Abbott's long history of anti-immigration sentiment recently included which recently included telling a right-wing radio host that the only thing Texas officials weren't doing to stop migrants crossing into the state is shooting people because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. Rep. Cuellar initially said Saturday that Texas officials did not grant access to Border Patrol agents to save migrants, sparking national headlines that the state officials had prevented the rescuing of actively drowning migrants. But a new DOJ but a new DOJ filing with the Supreme Court refutes that narrative. 
It says Border Patrol was not notified of the migrants drowning until an hour after they occurred. The DOJ said Mexican officials told Border Patrol around 9 p.m. local time Friday that the three migrants had drowned in the area about an hour earlier. At the time, according to the filing, Border Patrol was also told that two other migrants were in distress on the U.S. side of the river. When a Border Patrol agent went to the entrance of the park to inform the Texas National Guard about the migrants who needed help and had drowned, the state agent said Border Patrol couldn't enter even in, even in emergency situations. The GOJ filing says, a spokesperson for the Department of Homeland Security said in a statement that the Texas officials physically barred Border, border Patrol agents from entering the area. I'm going to skip a bit. Um, again, you can visit motherjones.com to finish, to read the full article. Um, Friday's events, the DOJ added, illustrate how Texas stands in the way of Border Patrol patrolling the border, identifying and reaching any migrants in distress, securing those migrants, and even accessing any wire that it may need to cut or move to fulfill its responsibilities. A spokesperson for Customs and Border Protection said in a statement, officials, Said in a statement, officials are saddened by the tragic migrant drownings in Eagle Pass and remain gravely concerned by actions that prevent the U.S. Border Patrol from performing their essential missions of arresting individuals who enter the United States unlawfully and providing humanitarian response to individuals in need. The Biden administration sent a cease and desist letter to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton over the weekend claiming that the state's actions were unconstitutional impeded operations of Border Patrol and are in conflict with the authority and duties of Border Patrol under federal law, according to the Texas Tribune. The feds gave the state a deadline of Wednesday to stop blocking Border Patrol's access to the border. Representatives for Paxton's office didn't respond to a request for comment Tuesday. In a statement provided to Mother Jones, a DHS spokesperson said, the Texas governor's policies are cruel, dangerous, and inhumane and Texas's blatant disregard for federal authority over immigration poses grave risks. Um, there's no good person in the story that's kind of in control of, that has any real power or authority, to be honest. Um, the quote-unquote Democratic rep, Cuellar, he's an asshole, um, basically a Republican in all but title, um, a horrible man um, who the Democratic National Party um, helped throw a progressive young female uh, Latina progressive under the bus and helped him win. Um, Paxton is a corrupt politician, recently just was not impeached, but impeachment charges were brought up. Governor Abbott should be probably taken up for crimes against humanity for his treatment of migrants. The current president um, is siding probably with right wing to bring a huge immigration bill to fruition to hopefully win him um, conservative support. So all that to say is there are migrants dying by the numbers at the border um, and they're being demonized uh, and it's not great. This is such a tragic situation, of course, and these moments when instead of being sort of abstract policy about what to do with the um, immigration situation in America, it becomes people actually letting um, families drown, like enabling them to die, like taking it to the level of negligence that causes this harm to the people in the moment. Like it's, it really, um, you know, it changes your perspective. I had the same feeling 
learning about this incident as um, the situation with um, the Greek Coast Guard allowing people to die in the Mediterranean, um, incidents with the Italian Coast Guard allowing people to drown. It's like, you know, it's it becomes like about you in the moment, it would seem, right? Like, it's like, okay, maybe you have one stance on how immigration should work in America, but what you, to take it to the level where you literally know someone is in harm's way and you're so adamant about your beliefs that you're going to let them die and enable their death. I think that's so awful. It really is. And it, it's um, ProPublica in December. They had a story that was about when the Coast Guard intercepts unaccompanied minors. And I didn't read the full thing, but they interview multiple people. And like one thing that stood out was one of the people interviewed was clearly from like an anti-immigrant, like white young white guy, anti-immigrant, cons- like very right wing stance. And he was saying that, you know, he had this image in his mind of, oh, these illegal immigrants, like they're just trying to come here. And he's like, it, like, but once now that I'm doing it, it's like he, he was like his eyes were open that it wasn't the narrative he had been given of who is in these situations and like what the motivations are, especially when it's children. It's not an abstract thing. These aren't hypothetical lives like this is that abbott quote where he's talking about well of course we can't just shoot them because we'd be charged with murder like what the fuck kind of thing is that to say that that man will rot in his own hell like it is and, and it's not even like it, not just this it's every action he's taken like against any minority any woman anyone not white male and it's pretty i don't know um mind numbing at times but yeah like you want i mean watch the videos like seeing those migrants die like scream watching someone drown is not an easy thing to do um and that's what they're doing and yeah everyone needs to be very upset about this and hopefully something changes but the current immigration laws and border control is just out of control so i mean it's pretty stunning that even in this article that you are somehow sympathetic with the border patrol who are in themselves also awful as an entity um and department so i don't think they're the answer but um i guess they're not watching people drown as often i don't know what to say like i don't have anything good to say about the cops monitoring the border there so i hope we can figure this out and find some humanitarian way to get this fixed. Yeah, it's not encouraging that Abbott can make comments like that because he obviously feels comfortable uh, among his voters that that's what they want to hear or they'll approve of that. Um, But I'm glad, Jasmine, that you brought up a a kind of complimentary story that's the opposite case where someone with preconceived notions about what the border um, immigrant situation can look like had his views changed by seeing the desperation, seeing children. I I know the story you're referring to um, and it was, it highlighted a particular family, but it was children separated from their parents. In this case, it was a 
Um, a child from Haiti was being followed who had gone to the Bahamas and been in an abusive place where his mother thought he was being taken care of. She had moved with one of her other children to Canada. And he was one of many children that were put on a boat and sent to Florida. And the boat was basically sinking. And the Coast Guard is not under these, you know, it's unclear legislation because it's in the waters, like you said, Jasmine. And like, it, it's just, um, it's emotional. And I, I appreciate the reporters who are taking these images because a lot of times it's hearsay of what happened at these places, but the journalists are doing, I think, a profound job of taking footage of what the journeys look like, filming what the situation is when the Coast Guards receive them or choose to turn them away and let the boat sink. And I think at least that gives some, um, I know as a reader of different sources, seeing the images of these people and their journey is just overwhelming and makes it so real and each story so real. Yeah, it's very true. And the other thing that, I guess it's a broader issue that stood out for me from the story, the Mother Jones story that Matthew just shared is there's a lot of people in this country, too many, who actively want to instigate a situation where it's like their state against the federal government. And that was the thing that I got from this article was similar to like states rights type arguments around slavery, around Jim Crow laws, around school integration. Um, and that alone is like frightening. You know, like I do have my feelings about the country in general like i don't really hold like a rosy view of like what the laws are or the the founders and all of that but just as a practical matter it is very alarming and says a lot about like the breakdown in your sense of like institutions or order or whatever if these like if specific entities are allowed to just go rogue it really contributes to a sense of like things spiraling out of control and you know that mask being taken off of like things being under control and this guy is basically like daring the feds to do something and i who knows what's going to happen next those fights of state versus the government are also pick and chosen by the now probably about to be further empowered judiciary that is right wing so they get, they're now getting to choose which states get to impose their rights because like Colorado wanted to remove um, someone from the presidential ballot and I'm, Supreme Court's probably gonna be like, nope, that's not a state's rights. Um, whereas this border control is gonna probably be like, let Texas kill immigrants. That's right. And the not to fully digress to a totally different topic, but somewhat adjacent to this is the Supreme Court decision that's pending with um, that would have a major impact on the EPA's ability as a federal organization to oversee the environmental impact of different companies. If you're not aware of the EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency. And like that it's the kind of the same premise where it's like taking federal power away and giving it to independent organizations, but enabling them to kind of run off the map with policies that they might have. 
So in the case of the environment, like having companies evaluate whether or not they themselves are over, you know, using water or polluting or all these different things. And it's like, it's this present Supreme Court that's stacked by Trump that um, his power is still being wielded through them and their decision-making. And there's some really important cases coming up related to this structure of power in our country. And it's just really alarming. Um, so yeah, like that's a big overarching issue that we're seeing, not just with immigration, but with many other issues that affect all of us. I don't know. And especially with this being a pretty grim looking election year, it's, um, it's scary to think where that's all headed. All right. So you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is Toots and the Maytals with 5446 was my number. We'll be right back. Sing it up, mister! Hear what I say, sir, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. Get your hands in the air, sir! Woo! Yeah. Then you will get no hurt, mister, no, no, no. I said yeah, I said yeah, what they say. Available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our world news story, here's Janet. So the article that I'm going to read a few excerpts from is called Why Iran is the Common Link in Conflicts from Gaza to Pakistan. It was published on January 18th of this year in the New York Times, and it was written by Cassandra Vinograd. Israel and Gaza, Yemen and the Red Sea, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and now Pakistan too. 
At every flashpoint in a set of conflicts spanning 1,800 miles and involving a hodgepodge of unpredictable armed actors and interests, there's been a common thread, Iran. Tehran has left its imprint with its behind the scenes backing of combatants in places like Lebanon, Yemen, and, this, and with this week's direct missile strikes on targets in Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan. The Iran connection stems partly from Iran's decades-long effort to deter threats and undermine foes by building up like-minded militias across the Middle East. In addition, Iran itself, like neighboring countries, faces armed separatist movements and terrorist groups in conflict that readily spill over the borders. Here's a look at how Iran ties together recent tensions. What's the backstory here? Ever since the 1979 revolution that made Iran a Shiite Muslim theocracy, it has been isolated and has seen itself as besieged. Iran considers the United States and Israel to be its biggest enemies. For more than four decades, its leaders have vowed to destroy Israel. It also wants to establish itself as the most powerful nation in the Persian Gulf region, where its chief rival is Saudi Arabia, an American ally, and has brought and has often had hostile relations with the Saudis and some other predominantly Sunni Muslim Arab neighbors. With few other allies, Iran has long armed, trained, financed, advised, and even directed several movements that share Iran's enemies. Though Iranian forces have been involved directly in wars in Syria and Iraq, Tehran has mostly fought its enemies abroad by proxy. Iran, which calls itself and these militias the axis of resistance to American and Israeli power, sees it as part of a single struggle, said Hassan Alazan, a senior fe fellow for the Middle East policy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a policy analysis group. Why does Iran outsource its conflicts? While Iran wants to project its power and influence, it is reluctant to directly engage the United States or its allies, courting major retaliation or all out war. How secure Iran, Iran's leaders feel in their grip on power is unclear, but they know that decades of sanctions and embargoes have degraded Iran's military forces and its economy, and that their repressive government faces intense domestic opposition. Investing in proxy forces fellow Shiites in Lebanon, Iraq, and Yemen, and the Sunni Hamas in the Gaza Strip allows Iran to cause trouble for its enemies and to raise the prospect of causing more if attacked. Um, and then the article just identifies uh, three of the groups that are proxies for Iran. And the, the first one they list is Hezbollah in Lebanon, um, and they cite this as one of the most powerful and sophisticated of Iran's allied forces, um, a group that goes all the way back to the 1980s. And this is the group that we've seen in the news is um, inflicting uh, warfare with Israel at the northern border of Israel from Lebanon. Um, and they've been doing that basically since the attacks on October 7th. Um, another group that they cite of, is, of course, Hamas. This is the um, political 
kind of organization that initiated the violent attack on Israelis on October 7th and whom Israel is presently um, trying to eliminate. Um, and then the third group that they list is the Houthi movement in Yemen. And actually, Matthew and Jasmine had a nice discussion about the background of this organization way back on April 16th. So I'd encourage you to go back to Objection to the Rules episode to get a little more information on them. Um, but this organization uh, has become a powerful entity in Yemen, despite kind of modest uh, beginning. And they are the ones who, in the name of helping or being in solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza, they have been um, striking international ships, including American ships, in the Red Sea. Um, and despite America warning that if they keep doing that, they will strike against them, they've only increased um, their attacks on ships and they're kind of encouraging America to fight back. And we've uh, had several airstrikes this week in Yemen. So not only are we facilitating um, resources to Israel, we're now more directly engaging in the Middle East. So this is a really scary prospect for us and the world um, to have all of these different groups tied to Iran, um, Israel's stronger allies like the United States getting involved and having kind of explosive activity across a huge number of countries in the Middle East. Um, is this the pivotal moment that'll draw the world in in a serious way, the way we can look at the beginning of World War I or other world conflicts? Hopefully not, but it's starting to look really scary right now. I don't know enough about the wars and like the history to really have any educational comment on it, but like I've seen the what's happening in like the seas with like the Yemeni force and like what they call like the pirates and stuff and they've not killed anyone and yet um, Biden has like continued with the strikes in Yemen and the latest quote that I heard from him was like the reporter was like, Are you gonna continue the strikes? He's like, Well, are they working? By stopping people, no, but are they gonna going to continue yes like i don't know what the fuck we're doing over there but we really need to stop um and we are killing a lot of people it's with our tax dollars we are funding these wars we are causing these wars and we have no business being over there um you know the people who have the most power to stop it are just like no nah, we're just gonna keep doing this and then that leads to another, like, every action has a reaction. And then it just ratchets up and up and up and up and up. And No, you're absolutely right. Um, I think both of you made really good points. Um, I took a deeper dive into looking at Houthis, who they are. Um, there was both an NPR uh, interview about who are the Houthis and a New York Times one that I listened to and did some research on it. And just like you're saying with Jasmine about cause and reaction, like if you follow the rise of the Houthis from the 90s to now, um, in a, I'm not saying the, the leaders necessarily and their interests and their true motives, but the people who are, you know, moved by the Houthis movement, the actual people of Yemen, when you follow what they've been through and why this might be appealing to them, this movement, you know, you can be, put yourself in their shoes. You can be very much sympathetic to why their slogan is like, kill all the Americans. It's because, you know, we, we 
enabled a great, um, uh, we helped our Saudi allies who presumably we have for nefarious reasons to bomb their country and cause a huge famine, so much loss of life, so much starvation, so much suffering. So that's who we are in their eyes to begin with. We caused a crisis um, during the Iraq invasion in the Middle East. They remember that. Um, and now we are backing a effort that is, I would agree with the South African argument, is causing essentially a genocide of Palestinians. And this is a movement of uh, kind of camaraderie by a country who's also experienced um, starvation, bombing, and death and destruction at the Western allies' hands. They're looking at Palestine as people suffering just like they suffered. And they're, you know, kind of doing these strikes on our shipping industry, attacking ships. Um, and you can imagine young people kind of cheering it on, you know, like, we are the big bad empire of Star Wars and these are the rebels getting a few hits. Like it almost has that feel to it. And you can understand why people in that part of the world would be so angry with us and want our, our fall. And I felt like you suggested, Matthew, that the two, um, both on the NPR and the New York Times, the who are the Houthis, they really didn't convey any of uh, empathy or any like contextual comparison and why would this country be rising up with this specific Houthis organization? Um, I do think Iran is, you know, they're not a uh, sympathetic government, of course, they're very evil right now. And I thought the article was interesting tying all these different aspects of their tentacles and thinking about how they're oppressing their people they are not well, they don't have allies surrounding them. And so they're inciting this kind of violence. So I don't mean to condone groups like the Houthis and the Hamas by any means, but I'm talking about the real people who have been through so much and see a glimmer of hope in organizations that are standing against Western countries and, and the state of Israel that's been expanding its power um, in ways that harm their loved ones and have caused destruction in their lives. And, you know, it's it's kind of a terrifying moment, but I don't feel as an American that I am sympathetic to the engagements that we're having. Like, I think it's hard to look at us and ourselves as anything but a villain right now. Yeah. And the irony of anyone in this country, a citizen of this country, um, lamenting against a rebellion group after these people have seen their families being blown apart for decades now as though we don't have milit like militant pockets currently in our country um, that are cheered on i really wish that um salmon was on the show right now because i know that um she definitely has more knowledge like of the region and talking about iran and i'm an atheist like i'm really not so you know a theocracy of any kind is not my jam you know so these countries are like our goal is we have a state religion of like and you better follow it i'm not into that at all and i don't want to discount um the type of repression that that represents however i will say that you know if you look into like 
what Iran was and like the history of uh, U.S. interference in Iran before the revolution, when they have, you know, their own, like a secular uh, leader who is like more socialist, but is not going to prioritize Western and American interests, having him taken out, you know, us influencing him to be taken out. And then you reinstall someone that is, you know, going to be supportive to the West, but is throwing his own people under the bus. Like, it creates a situation where, like, whether you're atheist, religious, whatever, communist, whatever, it's like everyone's common enemy was, like, the Shah who was not, who was betraying his people. And in my view, unfortunately, in the aftermath of that, sometimes the most extreme like people that are willing to do like acts of violence who might have a religious motivation are going to be like the winners like in a power vacuum struggle after that history is long and like our history especially in this country of interfering and interfering doesn't even sound like a strong enough word it's like straight up like helping to like install like murderous people (laughs) in order to get the resources out of some other country is very long and a lot of people are like ignorant of that i'm not saying anything in the new york times article isn't true but i definitely think you have to be aware of the spin or the lack of contextualizing on the other end it's like for everything where you can say oh iran is like sending weapons to so and so how often can you say that the u.s has been funding this or that death squad you know like it's really it's complex and it's horrible because like with anything that we talk about on the show it's the regular people that suffer no i totally agree and i think There's so many that like this is America's MO is that, of course, what's going on, the reason why we are now having airstrikes is because our big ships full of merchandise, which affects our economy, is being threatened. So back to the, you know, money, money, money. This is when we start um, taking out the big guns and then we'll get into the rhetoric about democracy. But that's not really what it's about. I think we really like our government really likes leaders who um, want to give us their precious minerals and resources um, for cheap. Um, and if you do, we will not coup you. Yeah, definitely a, a complex situation and good to read up on the details. Uh, so you have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. And for our last musical break, this is Slippery People performed live by the Talking Heads. Uh, this is from their concert album, Stop Making Sense. And just to give a special shout out to the amazing women on background vocals, uh, they are Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt. Thanks for listening and have a good rest of your week. Bye. Bye. Take care.